You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 41. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we have our final installment in our series of conversations about North America's smallest falcon, the American kestrel. We'll be talking with Boise State University professor Julie Heath about her long-running kestrel research project here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. Before we jump into this conversation, however, I'm going to share a quick update on our feature-length film project, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. Although this episode will be released on September 30th, I'm recording on September 23rd, just before leaving for our second big shoot in the northern Gulf of California, the area that the critically endangered Vaquita porpoise calls home. Our primary goal for this upcoming shoot is to document the massive survey effort that is about to begin throughout the Vaquita's range. The Mexican government agency, which goes by the acronym S-E-M-A-R-N-A-T, which stands for Secretaria de Medio Ambiente y Recursos Naturales, apologies for my poor Spanish pronunciation, um, is running this survey mission in close collaboration with NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in the U.S. This is the first big survey effort for Vaquita since 2008, and although acoustic monitoring has been ongoing since that time, this new survey will hopefully allow chief scientists Lorenzo Rojas Bracho and Barbara Taylor to get a much more accurate census of the population. This is particularly important after a new report released this past summer by the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita, which suggests that Vaquita population numbers could be even lower than previous estimates, possibly as low as 50 individuals. This was very alarming news. However, these population estimates are based solely on remote acoustic monitoring systems, making it difficult to know for certain the accuracy of these estimates. This survey mission will last from September 27th through December 3rd, more than two full months. Throughout this time, the survey vessel will be conducting transects across the entire range of the Vaquita. At the end of this two-month period, scientists hope to have a much clearer picture of how the Vaquita population is doing. A critical component of this issue, which the survey mission will help determine, is the effectiveness of Mexico's recent implementation of an emergency two-year ban on the use of all gillnets within the Vaquitas range. This action was unprecedented. No government in history has attempted to ban all gillnet activity across such a wide area, and many people are looking to the northern Gulf of California right now to see how effective this action will be. Of course, we are particularly interested in this as well. Everyone that we've interviewed on this topic has told us that for the vaquita to escape extinction, the enforcement of this ban must be absolutely perfect. Unfortunately, we already know that enforcement of the ban up until this point has, in fact, been imperfect. Over the summer, Greenpeace Mexico conducted an investigation in the region and found several illegal gillnetting operations active within the Vaquitas range. These were small-scale fishing operations, but their existence is truly worrisome. 
We'll also be spending some of our time in San Felipe meeting with representatives from Greenpeace Mexico and discussing this specific investigation. Hopefully, we'll have the opportunity to talk with some of the fishermen that have been assisting in Greenpeace's ongoing efforts to investigate illegal fishing activity, as this is a central component to this issue. It seems clear that if gill netting were to stop completely within the vaquitas range, that we would eventually see the population start to recover. The true test of this emergency action by the Mexican government to ban gill nets is this. Is it possible for fishermen to find alternate means of making a living, either by using alternative fishing methods or by transitioning into other types of work? This is what government agencies all across the world will be looking at as they contemplate whether or not similar action might be effective elsewhere. I will only be in San Felipe and the Northern Gulf of California for about two weeks of this two-month-long survey, so I certainly won't have all the answers when I start to head home back to Idaho. Luckily, Sean Bogle, our Eyes on Conservation producer and the director of this new film, Souls of the Vermilion Sea, will be heading back down to the San Felipe area in November to capture the second half of this survey effort and get a better sense of what has been learned over the course of these two months spent, spent out in the Gulf. There is one aspect of my upcoming trip to Mexico that may yield immediate benefits, however. I'll be meeting up with a crew of graduate engineering students from UC San Diego who have built an underwater camera trap designed specifically to capture the very first underwater images of the vaquita. As you might imagine, this is something that we are particularly interested in. The vaquita porpoise is so elusive and there are so few of them remaining that capturing images of them in the wild has proven to be extremely difficult over the years. Today, the only images of vaquitas in the wild show only the upper part of the body as they come to the surface to take a breath. No one has ever captured an underwater image of a vaquita. In fact, no one has ever even captured an image of the entire body of a living vaquita. So the opportunity to work with this team from UC San Diego is extremely exciting for us. I'll be with them while they perform the very first test of their new underwater drone within the Vaquitas range, and I'll be crossing my fingers that the crew is able to capture that first underwater imagery of the species. I'll also be working with a crew of my own while on this trip down to San Felipe. I'll be traveling with biology student and aspiring filmmaker Joe Schull. I first met Joe on International Save the Vaquita Day when I gave a series of Vaquita presentations at the Aquarium of Boise. Joe works part-time at the aquarium while attending Boise State University and expressed great interest in this project that I was working on. Over the past two months, Joe has been working to establish collaborative relationships between Boise State University, the Aquarium of Boise, and Wild Lens. He will be writing a series of blog articles about his experiences in Mexico working on this project and will be releasing these articles in partnership with BSU and the aquarium. The third member of our crew is Brenda Razo, a visual artist from Mexico City. Brenda reached out to us while we were running our Kickstarter campaign for Souls of the Vermilion Sea with a strong desire to use her background in photography and visual art to aid in the recovery of the vaquita. Since then, Brenda has proven to be an invaluable resource for us, both in her role as an artistic collaborator, but also as a co-producer with the ability to develop important new connections within Mexico. Another partnership that we've been developing and will play a crucial role in this upcoming trip is with a man named Greg Alker and the organization he runs, Grupo Cleofas. 
This organization runs oceanic expeditions with a strong focus on bringing attention to conservation issues of critical importance. Greg and Grupo Cleofas operate the research vessel Maria Cleofas, which will be present in the northern Gulf of California for a portion of the time when the survey effort is active. Greg has been extraordinarily generous in allowing us to use the Maria Cleofas as a platform for capturing Vaquita footage. This will dramatically increase our chances of catching a glimpse and hopefully gathering some footage of the extremely elusive Vaquita. And we are forever indebted to Greg for his generosity and commitment to Vaquita conservation and awareness. This will be my first time venturing south of the border, and I couldn't be more excited. By the time this episode is released, I'll be on board the Vaquita survey vessel in the middle of the Vaquitas range in the Gulf of California. My experience as both a biologist and a filmmaker up until this point has been primarily focused on birds and bird conservation. So this project focused on marine mammal species is an exciting new adventure for me. I've learned quite a lot about issues in marine mammal conservation and the vaquitas specifically, of course, over the past several months of working on this project. But this direct experience that I'm about to gain working with vaquita researchers and experts uh, will be a learning experience on a whole different level, and I'm extremely excited. Now, let's get back to a species that is a whole lot closer to home for me, the American kestrel. Today's interview with Boise State University professor Julie Heath is focused on kestrel populations here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. We'll learn why this region is a special place for kestrels and talk about how new genetic research will allow us to learn more about how kestrels are adapting to changes in climate. Let's jump into the interview. I'm here with Julie Heath, who is an associate professor and the graduate program coordinator in the Department of Biological Sciences at Boise State University. How are you doing, Julie? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Um, I, I want to start off just by having you tell me a little bit about uh, Boise State University's uh, raptor biology program. Why is this program unique? Uh, well, it's unique in that it's the only program in the country where you can get a graduate degree in raptor biology. All of our students uh, share a passion and interest in doing research on birds of prey. And so um, having a group of people who are interested in sort of addressing questions about raptors in the same spot is very powerful. In addition, we have a lot of local partners like the Peregrine Fund and uh, the USGS Snake River Field Station and the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area that make this, this location a really great spot to, to study raptors and work with other raptor experts. Awesome. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Boise is, really seems like this hub for raptor research. Um, I, I mean, is this, uh, you know, aside from the fact that there are these great collaborators here in this area, I mean, what is it about the region itself that makes it a special place to study birds of prey? Uh, well, I, I, I think it was the location of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area that has one of the densest population of nesting uh, birds of prey that really made this location um, prime for looking at um, raptor biology. Tell me about the American kestrel. Um, why do you enjoy working with this species so much? I really like working with raptors or birds of prey because I'm very interested in how animals are responding to big patterns of global change. And I think that birds of prey as top predators are very indicative of environmental change chain because 
they sort of can show the cumulative effects of ecosystem change and how they how they respond since they're they're at the top of sort of the food web. Uh, American kestrels uh, are, are great great birds to work with because there's there's relatively there's more of them on the landscape than compared to something with a larger body size like a golden eagle. Uh, they're also uh, generalist species, meaning that they they eat a, a wide variety and can survive on a wide wide variety of prey items, which makes them really exciting. And they have uh, quite a bit of what we call plasticity in how they live their lives, meaning some kestrels migrate, some pe- kestrels are year-round residents where they live, some kestrels make uh, short elevational movements. Uh, and so to me, that sort of variation in what they eat, what kind of annual cycles they have, the type of movements they make, make them really, really interesting and really a, a great species to look at how populations might respond to environmental change. So how did you first get involved studying the American kestrel? Uh, well, I had done um, some of my graduate work on American kestrels. And then when I came to Boise as a faculty member, one of my former collaborators, Karen Steenhoff, was retiring from USGS. And she had run an American kestrel nest box project for about 17 years. And uh, she had done it um, by by capturing all of the adult birds that were nesting in the box and then also marking um, the young birds and tracking them generation after generation. And she had just a wealth of data on this population in southwestern Idaho. And uh, when I got to Boise, she said, hey, do you want to collaborate on, on analyzing some of these data and then sort of take over monitoring um, kestrels in these boxes? And one of the very first patterns that Karen had mentioned seeing, and then when we started looking at the data, was really obvious was that the kestrels were changing their timing of when they were breeding. And this is, um, this is a phenomenon that a lot of people have been reporting in all types of animals uh, in response to climate change. So we are really intrigued by this pattern. Gotcha. So uh, you mentioned that, that when you took over, Karen had been, um, she, she had been doing this monitoring for 17 years. So how long ago was that? I mean, what's the total length of this uh, study at this point? Um, it started, um, well, the first boxes were put up in 1987, but uh, we usually uh, start sort of the data now since, since 1990. Gotcha. So, I mean, are there any other sort of comparable research projects going on looking at this species? Um, well, you know, because kestrels uh, will nest in nest boxes, they are a popular way or popular species to study because people can post boxes and then visit them over a long period. Um, our project, though, is one of the largest and longest running kestrel projects in North America. And we have one of the things that makes it really special is the fact that we've been capturing the adults each year. So many people who work with kestrels uh, ban their young. Um, but then don't uh, return and then capture and see where do those young go and disperse and how long do they survive. But by capturing the adults each year, we start to really start to understand some of the survival components, which is important for understanding the things that cause populations to go up and down since survival is such an important component of that. Gotcha. So you mentioned that you've been seeing uh, changes in the timing of when the kestrels are breeding, right? Um, I mean, are, are there any other sort of interesting patterns that, that you guys have seen in, in, in this large data set? 
the other thing that we've noticed in this data set is is uh, within a nesting season, the importance of timing of when breeding happens. So the birds who nest earliest in the season, um, those young are most likely to come back to our breeding population, survive, and come back and have young of their own, which is a huge, huge component of what we would call some local fitness and sort of having offspring that come back and nest in the area where the adults, um, where they were produced. And then the other thing is adults who breed earlier in the season, especially females, have higher survival as well. So there's something about being early uh, or the first breeders in the season that really seems to have a strong benefit. And in fact, this year, we saw the earliest breeding that we've seen in all years of the study. And many of our earliest breeders then had a second round of breeding and uh, were successful. And so they they, uh, produced as many as 10 nestlings this year, which is tremendous. Wow. Fascinating. So how are kestrel populations as a whole, you know, in, in this region, in the Treasure Valley, um, h- how are they doing? I mean, are, are populi- populations stable? Are they decreasing, increasing? Well, from what we can see with our occupancy of our boxes, they've remained relatively st- stable over the course of the study. Um, however, that doesn't mean there hasn't been change in the population. So we've done... Um, larger scale research looking at uh, band returns and um, Christmas bird count data, looking at wintering distributions of kestrels. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that kestrels are changing uh, their migration distances in response to warming winters. So changes are certainly happening, right, as a result of changes in climate. It's probably hard to sort of tease out exactly what impact that's having on on kestrel populations as a whole. Yes, uh, it's very <laughs> difficult to tease out. Um, and it's very, I, I think what it implies that we can take from the, from this one part of the area, because kestrels do have such a wide range, all of North America, essentially, um, we can see, boy, they, they are definitely responding to changes in climate here. Most likely they're responding to changes in climate in other parts of their range as well. And sort of the speed and the mechanism that they're responding uh, is really important to determine. Um, the other thing that's incredibly important uh, to know is that birds of prey are one of the only land birds in North America that um, do not have population monitoring that occurs on their nesting grounds. Almost all birds of prey are monitored through migration counts. And you can imagine that having factors that affect whether or not birds migrate or how far they migrate really influences our ability to detect trends in populations over time. So we really have to understand, you know, how will migration change in response to changes in climates in order to even just understand how are birds of prey doing in North America at all. And so that is a, is a really makes this very um, relevant to a much broader issue, not just for kestrel, but for all diurnal birds of prey. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm starting to sort of see the complexity that's involved here, mm. um, you know, and and with kestrel specifically um, because of this wide distribution all across North America. Um, but yeah, the implications for, for many other species as well. Um, so I want to jump into um, what's been dubbed the Bird Gene Escape Project. Um, and... You know, this is sort of a genetic mapping technique that 
seems like it it holds promise to sort of tease out some of these questions that that you've been trying to answer with your data set um, for a long time now. Um, so, but maybe you can start off just by sort of explaining um, how you first learned about the Bird Gene Escape Project. Um, I first learned about the project at a meeting of ornithologists in Colorado when I was sitting in a talk, and I was very fortunate um, that uh, Dr. Kristen Ruig uh, stood up and gave a talk about her work with Wilson's warblers and using single nucleotide polymorphisms to understand population structures in Wilson's warblers. And then she also she showed a picture of a migration site where they could track, um, as individuals came through the migration site, they could track what populations those warblers came from. And after her talk, all of the audience, about 200 people, I swear, were like laying flat on their backs with excitement, both like kind of both blown away and then just totally out of their chairs. And I was so fortunate because I was sitting right behind her. So when she came back, I tapped her on her shoulder and said, would you come to Boise? Um, you know, we, we've got a great species for, for this type of tool. And so she, Kristen came, and um, it's been great ever since working with her and Tom Smith at UCLA. So I, I love your explanation of that reaction to, you know, to her presentation of, of um, her research and, and this new genetic mapping technique. Why did she get this universal response from everybody in the room? Like, why was it that all these, you know, ornithologists who specialize in study bearers, like, saw this technique and were just so blown away by it? Like, what's so revolutionary about this? Uh, ornithologists for for years and years have been wanting to understand um, where birds go, and and uh, it's very very hard to know. I mean, when you think about the sort of awe inspiring bird migrations that happen uh, all over the world, um, you know, most most of these animals that are making these migrations are tiny, and uh, you know, it's very very hard. Only the largest of, of the taxa can we put something like a tra- satellite transmitter on and track them, you know, across their paths. And so for these birds that are smaller, like warblers, kestrels, um, other small types of birds, it's very hard to track their movements. And so to capture a bird, let's say in southern Arizona, as it's making its way north, that has no bands, um, no no sort of, you know, license plate telling you where it came from, uh, it's 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 impossible to know. You just know, oh, this is a species that uh, you know might nest anywhere from California to Canada, and um, you know who knows where this bird will, came from or where it's going. But with this technique, we can start to get at um, at least where this bird originated from, and that's that's incredibly exciting because ornithologists want to know that we want to be able to start understanding how are places where birds spend the year connected. That's incredibly important because, you know, in North America, we, we commonly see many migratory species only in a small part of the year. And the rest of the year, they're spending their lives, um, you know, far away. And, uh, and, of course, the things that happen to them on their migration sites or their wintering sites really affect the populations we see in the breeding season. So it's important we start understanding those connections. I want to understand how is it that this genetic mapping technique is going to allow you to sort of tease out some of the differences between different populations of kestrels all across North America? Well, our our first goal is to develop um, the single nucleotide polymorphisms um, that figure out which which part of the sequence 
has the most variation to tell us the most information. And so uh, this last summer, we have collaborators in Florida and Alaska and Canada um, and Oregon and Pennsylvania, all everywhere across the sort of edges of the Kestrel Range, collecting uh, very small blood samples. And so we now have a have a good good sampling from across the range, and those will go to UCLA. And we ha- are hopefully going to have a graduate student who will develop and figure out which markers are best at determining um, where Kestrels come from. And so once we have have those and have sort of created a map of the genoscape, we can then go and take a sample from a kestrel with an unknown origin and um, try to see, you know, does this kestrel most closely match, you know, a bird from, say, you know, the northwest or the, the northeast or the southeast. So there's two stages to this research project, right? I mean, the first stage, which it sounds mm-hmm. like you guys have already started, is building this genetic map, this genoscape for a species. Um, and you need those those blood samples for that, right? And mm-hmm. so that's sort of the stage where you're at now is you've you've already collected all those blood samples that you need. Yep. And so the next step is to actually just analyze them and sort of build this map um, of breeding populations of kestrels all across North America. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then once you have that, then... All you need is a feather sample, right? And so if you take a feather sample from a migrating kestrel or a kestrel on its wintering ground, then you can track it back to its specific breeding population. Yes. One of the one of the issues when I was talking earlier about how flexible kestrels are and, and the way that they um, kind of live their life through the year, uh, I'll give you an example here in Idaho. Uh, some birds remain here year-round. Uh, some birds... Uh, breed here and then winter down south. And we suspect that some birds from the northern breathing areas come and winter in Idaho. And so essentially that's sort of three different types of kestrels, um, all spending at least part of the year in one spot. And um, I, my hope is that indeed we might be able to tell the difference if we go out in winter and we sample a bird that we've never seen before, and we can say this is a bird that was hatched here in Idaho, or you know this is a bird that's from British Columbia and or further north, and it's spending the winter here. So that would be one one way to start pull, start teasing apart different strategies. I mean, and then of course the next fascinating step is how are these birds different? How are they different in their physiology? How are they different in their contaminant loads? Um, how are they different in how they survive through the winter here? Uh, and then, and likewise, uh, we have a couple of other techniques that we're working on right now to try to pull apart. Okay, well, if you have birds that are breeding here, but at least a portion of them are migrating further south, um, we've been able to determine that we can use claw isotopes to figure out whether or not birds have migrated south for the winter. So when they come back and breed, we can compare okay, let's let's compare the birds that were resident to the birds who left for the winter. And, um, you know, how well did they do at, at breeding? One thing we already have a lot of evidence for is that the birds who spent the winter here breed earlier. And as I mentioned in the beginning part of the, our, our talk today is that birds who breed first do better. And so we're starting to suspect that sort of the resident behavior um, is is favored, and, and there'll be more and more proportion of the population that'll be resident year-round. Huh, fascinating. Super cool. <laughs> We've sort of gone through 
a lot of really sort of fascinating questions that this new genetic technique will allow yourself and other researchers to 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 answer right um i mean the next step beyond that though is sort of taking um that research and using it to um to to help manage populations right so i mean what are the management implications of um you know finding some of these answers to uh you know differences between different populations of kestrels well, I, th- I think probably our first step is starting to understand um, is going to the wintering areas uh, and starting to understand where kestrels from different portions of the breeding range spend the winter. Because uh, we suspect that, um, you know, in areas that we see kestrel declines, those that do reproduce do well. And we don't see sort of declines in the number of young produce or lots of failed eggs, as we've seen in the past with other problems with birds of prey who had um, problems hatching eggs, say. Um, we see that kestrels in general are, are producing young, you know, in, in similar amounts to birds in areas where they're not declining. So we suspect that what's going on is that a proportion, a higher proportion of kestrels um, are dying or having... Um, lower survivorship, and so that's causing declines in these areas. And we also suspect that that might be either on migration or the wintering grounds. And so we can travel uh, to the winter uh, range and figure out, okay, in these areas where we're seeing the strongest declines, where did those birds winter? And that's incredibly important. The other application that I'll mention, again, is definitely sort of understanding how migration patterns change in response to different climate conditions and that's very relevant to our ability to monitor raptors. That application is much more steps removed a bit than the first sort of like, this is where kestrels are declining, this is where they're wintering, oh, look where they're wintering, there's been perhaps big habitat change or loss of um, lots of development or, or things like that. So that's kind of, you know, looking for the smoking gun, whereas the other application is much more uh, sort of indirect but important. Is there any way for folks to get involved in, in this research? Um, I mean, is there a citizen science component to the Kestrel research that, that you're doing? Well, we, we are partnering with the American Kestrel Partnership uh, of the Peregrine Fund, who is a group of citizen scientists who um, have nest boxes that they have posted and are monitoring those boxes and entering data. At this time, we are not uh, encouraging putting up more nest boxes until we understand um, what are appropriate sites to put nest boxes up where to make sure that we are not attracting kestrels to areas where uh, the birds might uh, actually have a higher threat of mortality or not be able to successfully reproduce. However, another really great way for everyone to contribute is through the sort of social media public source of information. So eBird, Christmas Bird Counts, all of these um, data sources that in the past were sort of done through hobby and maybe for an educational purposes, those data have become so important for understanding broad-scale patterns of change. So we really encourage people to continue contributing to those efforts. They're really important. That's a really good point, right? And these are projects, these are citizen science projects that are long running. Um, and like you said, a lot of the data that, that has been collected over the years probably, you know, was uh, undoubtedly collected without the realization of 
how important these data sets would be moving forward, especially um, as our climate changes. Um, so yeah, those are both, those are great programs to, to sort of highlight here and um, a great way for folks to, to, to get involved in this. Well, thanks a lot, Julie, for coming on the show and uh, sort of sharing your vast knowledge of uh, Kestrel research. Um, yeah, it was a great conversation. Great. Thanks for having me. All right. That was our interview with Boise State University professor Julie Heath. I love how Julie highlights the importance of learning how kestrels and other species are adapting to climate change. It's fascinating to see how kestrels here in the Treasure Valley are adapting to these changes already, and it actually gives me some hope to see that this species has the ability to change its behavior in response to these changes in its surrounding environment. Of course, this needs to be investigated further, as Julie explained, and we truly are on the cusp of learning a whole lot more about how this species is adapting and interacting with its environment, thanks to the new genetic mapping technique that we've been exploring over the past month. This marks our last episode, for now at least, focused on the American kestrel. And I must say that it's been a lot of fun learning more about this small falcon species. I'll throw one final pitch in here for folks to check out the crowdsource campaign being run by the Peregrine Fund and the American Kestrel Partnership. If you're looking to get involved in some way in kestrel research and conservation, this really is a unique opportunity to become a part of this cutting-edge new research. We'll have more information and a link to the campaign on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org EOC41. We'll also include a few links and some additional information on our current Vaquita expedition in Mexico. So if you want to read more about our adventures south of the border and get the latest updates from the survey vessel currently in the Gulf of California, you can find this information on the show notes page as well. That link, again, is wildlensinc.org slash EOC41. This episode is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Thank you.